You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey folks, happy Wednesday. My guest for today is Sam Ristagno. He is one of the managing partners and co-founders of Golden Spruce Capital. And this was a really fun conversation. Uh, Golden Spruce Capital uh, is a private investment company that focuses on buying small businesses. And we kind of classify this as companies that have an EBITDA of one to five million dollars. And for some of you who are not in the accounting realm, you know, I don't want to make you feel as if you're left out. And EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Yeah, I'm not really going to go into the history of why that was made, but it's a very relevant term in the world of investing and just overall finance. But yeah, so our chat with uh, Sam takes me through just how he persevered through his career journey. Of um, He was really dead set on going into investment banking when he was in university and the first time around just didn't happen but eventually makes it through and we go through the process of really making the decision to leave that plush expense account and the comfy life that banking ultimately rewards the people that get in there with and really taking the journey to start a two-person fund with his business partner and we really dive into the world of small company investing and like the really big importance of relationship building in that aspect, the opportunity size of that in Toronto and just general Canada area, as well as just the various funding options. Like how do you run, uh, you know, five twenty million dollar fund, and the realities of how frugal you have to be, how much you really have to hustle, even if you are running a private equity fund, because when you start off, it's just going to be like any other startup. I personally got a lot of value out of this chat and. You know, if in, even if you aren't someone who isn't really hell-bent on running your own investment company in the future, I really think you'll be able to extract a lot of value out of our conversation as well. So I really hope you enjoy my chat with Sam Ristagno. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us now on Accounted For once again. Today on the podcast, I have Sam Ristagno. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Excellent. I'm very Thank you. You did your homework. Yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> Sam is the managing partner at Golden Spruce Capital. And so, Sam, um, can you just, for our audience's sake, give a quick explanation of what Golden Spruce Capital is, just for their understanding? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So, Golden Spruce Capital is an independent sponsor. Uh, and we, I'm sure we'll get into explaining what that is. But an independent sponsor that looks to make uh, investments in what we like to you know, determine or classify as best in class uh, businesses, small, medium sized businesses. So businesses spanning you know, a million to five million of, of uh, EBITDA. Um, we focus primarily on uh, Ontario and call it California based businesses, although we, we are looking at some opportunities broadly across Canada, uh, but are, are fairly, you know, fairly concentrated in those for selfish reasons. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we like a myriad of industries that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into, uh, really like tech enabled businesses, like asset light businesses, 
um, and really businesses where we can generate a partnership with uh, with existing owners and, and managers. Um, you know, the the genesis of Golden Spruce Capital was providing a means to um, you know aid in succession planning because we we noticed a, a real a real dislocation in the market where there's a lot of really great mature small businesses that have been run like family businesses for a long time uh, that the first generation created it. The second generation doesn't really have an interest in, you know, working in a, in a widget based business. You know, they, they you know, in, in a lot of cases want to be artists or, you know, want, want to do things that, um, you know, being the second generation of a, of a, uh, you know, a high earning business is, uh, the byproduct of um, and you know we tried to insert ourselves there to to assist that transition planning that succession planning you know uh, funny funny thing there is, is you know it was initially intended to target call it the you know 50 to 60 year old entrepreneur uh, that was looking for that okay I need to retire and I haven't really been able to think about it and oddly enough you know uh, we've had our greatest success with with the younger entrepreneurs that are looking for partners and not necessarily succession planning, but more so in just helping professionalize and add some jet fuel to the business. So long-winded way to say, independent sponsor that uh, focuses on uh, small to medium-sized businesses. Okay, no, uh, I think I think that was a, definitely a good color to have, though, in the industry, just because um, my, my understanding is like I, I have friends in private equity. Also, um, I grew up in Vancouver, and so in Vancouver, there really isn't much of an industry except for small business owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I think... I. I'm at that generation with my friends where we have parents who are part of the baby boomer generation and they are either going to give you the business or preparing you to take over, which right. is happening with some of my friends, or my friends try it out and then they say, you know what, I, I don't want to do leather goods and right. you know, shipping <laughs> of bags anymore. Like It's just not right. my thing. And so then the parents decide, okay, we're going to sell up. And that has been a very common, I think, thesis that's been brewing up with, oh yeah, like, the baby, the baby boomer wave, they're all going to seek liquidity. You know, they're not going to get as much yield on their retirement funds anymore. So right. they want to sell their business. And so I think a lot of people thought that that would be the big play for the lower market private equity side. And from what you're telling me, that's that's actually quite surprising that you've seen more success with the younger people. Well, you know, it's it's not. Um, I think that might be more a function of the sample size isn't huge, right? Like mm. we've been we've been at this for uh, for two years now. My partner uh, Leith Asher and myself have been at this for two years, and have spoken to you know uh, upwards of two to three hundred you know entrepreneurs and, and uh, also businesses by. By definition, um, and you know, I'd say the 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 majority of those are folks who are that you know north of fifty, mm. and say you know whether the child doesn't have interest or the parent doesn't believe that the child is um, is capable, uh, we see that we see that a fair amount. Um, where we've had success is, you know, we've just developed good relationships with a, with a few folks that, that happen to be a little younger, but we've got great relationships with some some older folks that are kind of in that more traditional, um, you know, looking to looking to provide that that layer of succession transition planning in their own business. Um, but yeah, you know, certainly not by design, and that's one of the things I'm sure you've talked to, you know, some some startup founders. You've, you've got to be able to pivot. And you've got to find find your spot that's uh, that's working, and that becomes your business model that day, right? So, yeah. um, we we've stayed fairly flexible through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, before we go, I guess deeper into the Golden Spruce model, which I'm just so fascinated to learn about. Um, 
when I did a little digging in your background, it would, you know, you look on LinkedIn, then we see you went to Western, mm-hmm. uh, and then you did some financial or financial planning controller work, and then you went to Rotman to do your MBA, then some investment banking, and then you went to do some corp dev at Dental Corp, and mm-hmm. then now you're launching Golden Spruce. So if you could take me back to kind of the earlier years, um, what was the transition like in terms of you graduated and did you have a, it seemed that you always had an inkling to go into the finance world um, and how did that kind of thought process and design work? Yeah, I, I definitely did. You know, I think it started started a little younger. It started a little younger for me in terms of, you know, that's uh, that was my father's background. He was in finance and oh. um, I was always intrigued by it. And then as a, you know, a very... Um, you know, a very pliable teen and, a, and an influenceable teen, um, you know, saw some movies. I was like, oh, this looks like a lot of fun. And I'd love to, you know, I'd love to live in New York or Los Angeles and work in finance. It sounds fantastic. So I went to Western and um, knew I wanted to get into finance and, you know, knew, you know, and I'm, yeah, unfortunately, the listener can't see me do the air quotes, but knew that I wanted to do investment banking. And that's really what my career was going to be. Because, as, you know, as every 18-year-old knows, you know, they know exactly what they're going to do in their career. Um, and I'm, you know, we're, we're just figuring it out now. But, uh, you know, <laughs> figured out I wanted to do investment banking. And, um, you know, the process to get into banking, is, as you, you know, alluded, you've, you've got some friends that kind of went that path. It's, it's competitive. It's challenging, right? And, and um, you know, if I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, I probably had a little too much fun in undergrad. Where getting into getting into banking was tough, and you know I, I can't imagine the kid the, the kids today graduating are it's a bit different because you know we've had a quite a run for some time in terms of the market, but you know this was two thousand seven two thousand eight, so they're hiring in droves, and I'm not one of them, right? So I kind of had to reassess and say, okay, well I'm gonna do it eventually. They're just not gonna let me in the front door. I'm gonna come in another way. And uh, ended up getting a great gig with uh, with Siemens, the um, engineering, the European engineering conglomerate, in their oil and gas uh, on their oil and gas team as part of this you know development program. And I remember, you know, I was so eager to get the job in the interview process. They said, you know, would you be willing to move? And I made a comment saying, you know, I'd, I'd move to Kalamazoo, uh, you know, for for the gig, just as a as a joke. I didn't even know where Kalamazoo was at the time. Uh, and sure enough, I get a call, you know, a week later saying, you know, good news. You're one of six people that we're bringing into this program. And it was very competitive to get in and good news. You're bringing in this program. I said, it's fantastic. I said, when do I start? I said, you know, middle of May. Great. Um, yeah. So you're, uh, you know, we'll book your flights for you. And, you know, um, I'm a, so, sorry, what was that? It's like, oh, you're starting in Calgary. And I said, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, I guess I did agree to that in the interview, didn't I? I didn't think that my words mattered. So I ended up going out to Calgary and doing some operational finance. I really enjoyed it. I was in on the oil and gas team there, managing a few different pipeline projects. And just so happened that, you know, it's one of these things that happens in your career. You know, these weird opportunities kind of pop up. And as I was starting, the director who I was supposed to be reporting to, who directed the project, um, ended up going on mat leave early because, you know, I think she had her child a, a little premature and I stepped into the role. Not in, they didn't give me the director title, but I took on a lot, a lot of responsibility, um, and you know, kind of flew by the seat of my pants and figured it out. And you know, at the end of that, it was I was there for about a year, and then moved back to Toronto uh, and joined the healthcare team, which was a lot more. Um, you know, I like to compare it to almost an assembly line, right? You've got a product, someone buys it, and you just kind of fulfill. And there was more 
you know, HR, not HR, sorry, FX hedging uh, and things of that nature, but it wasn't, it wasn't that exciting. And I knew, okay, it's time to get back to what I want to do, which was banking. And so I actually um, sent emails to about, you know, call it 70 to 75 investment banks saying, hey, I want to work for free. I'll come and work for free for you guys. And, uh, you know, knew that the big guys wouldn't be into it. So I, I looked at all the boutiques of small guys and, um, you know, there was actually, I only got feedback from one and this is to work for free. So now this is, uh, you know, call it September, 2009 and uh, no, a little later, maybe uh, January, 2010 and got an email from one saying, yeah, we'd love for you to come on. I won't name them cause I don't want to, you know, get you into any trouble, but said, yeah, we'd love for you to come on. I said, great, you know, like to put some term on this, you know, how's three months? I said, no, we want you to work, you know, indefinitely. I'm, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, last I checked, servitude's illegal in Canada, but, um, you know, slavery's not allowed. And, um, you know, so I ultimately said, you know what, forget it. I went to get my MBA robbed and I said, this is the way I'm going to get in. And, you know, sure enough, three months later, I was in as a summer associate and had a few different options. Uh, and the funny thing is, is I was the same guy I was three months earlier, right? I had three months of an MBA behind me. Um, you know, I effectively, you know, the first year of an MBA is quite repetitive if you've done a commerce undergrad or a business undergrad. So I did the same schooling, was the same person. And yet now getting in as, a, as an associate um, with the big banks was really easy to do because of the signal of the MBA. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not complaining. It worked out well. Um, and then, yeah, uh, made my transition, you know, to the, to the other gigs. I was at, uh, at RBC for some time on the, uh, with the sponsors team, which meant I covered private equity, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. So you had the benefit of doing a lot of client stuff. I had a great team there, um, really enjoyed the transaction work, but really, really loved the work that my clients were doing, having, you know, covering the private equity space and even the sovereign wealth fund guys to a certain extent. And, you know. I got to dabble in both. I got to do the, you know, high volume of, of investment banking with, you know, diving in fairly deep and on really interesting assets with the private equity guys. So it was, it was there that, you know, actually that's where um, Laith, Laith and I, Laith again, being my partner, uh, decided, hey, this would be pretty cool. This is kind of the search fund era now. We're in 2011 um, where, you know, OXO Capital and a couple other guys started up and uh, we looked at that and said that the looks like fun we should do something like that and it just so happened I was in the sponsor space so kind of long story that that was the initial seed of hey this is pretty interesting I could see myself doing this long term you know as a funny aside uh, it was my first day of my MBA and my whole life I wanted to do investment banking uh, not my whole life my whole adult life I wanted to do investment banking and uh, Toronto Life came in and asked if I would do a, like a little a little bio on myself that they could feature in Toronto Life and I said sure uh, and they said, you know, what are you going to be doing in 10 years? And the natural thing for me to say was investment banking, because that's what I always thought I would be doing. But instead, I said I would be a managing partner at a private equity fund, which, you know, if I'm being honest with myself now, I'm not quite sure that I knew really what that meant at the time. Uh, but it's just funny that it kind of worked out that way. Uh, so it's, it's been a roundabout way, but, you know, really happy with, with the choices and, and where I landed. Yeah, no, I think that that uh, little foreshadowing is really, really something there. It's it's kind of a it's a little uh, Freudian esque where you do a little bit of 
with a psychoanalysis and you're like deep down you knew what you yeah. wanted even though it wasn't really yeah it's obviously really it wasn't sure. my choice yeah. yeah it's like you were destined to be in that realm <laughs> right right it probably builds it up to a lot more than you know it probably <laughs> i might have heard it for the first time that day and you know i thought it sounded exciting and yeah, you know, yeah. i had a vague vague idea what uh, what private equity was but yeah. yeah it's it's funny how it came full circle i, I think it even the the timeline of everything is also, I think, quite unique in that you, you know, you were looking to get into the finance world, but I guess the great financial crisis had happened, and mm-hmm. I think at so that it's it's really timely because I think that was my so I'm a few years younger than you, but my kind of year of people we saw that when we were pre pre university, and then everyone became like the big accounting cohort, and everyone was like. We want stable jobs, mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't, mm-hmm. and we can really conservative. And so you see this huge entrance of accounting people, and not so much people who want to do investment banking. Right. But you kind of held on to it and just continued to push through despite that. Yeah, you know, it might be for a lack of awareness. I who knows, right? I mean, <laughs> I might not have been reading the headlines the same way everyone else was, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I mean, the jobs were still there. It was still a necessary part of the market or mm-hmm. part of you know part of the uh, economy, and. You know, it wasn't it wasn't popular at the time, right? I, you know, I think um, a lot of that industry had been vilified, and in, in some of it justifiably so, uh, as a result of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, but yeah, just stuck with my guns. I I knew I wanted that. I knew I had the horsepower, right? I I think I think a lot of people get into investment banking thinking they know what it is. And then until they get there, they don't really know what it is. And that was certainly, you know, I can't speak for other people. I'll speak for myself. That was the case with me where I had this, you know, really shiny idea of, you know, what investment banking was and what the life of an associate was. Um, And it was probably informed by a lot of, you know, a lot of media and, you know, in my, in my teens. And I got there and not that I didn't like it. I really enjoyed it, but it was very different. And maybe the environment in Canada, and certainly, actually, I know this. A few of my friends are in the states uh, doing this, but the environment in Canada is very different. It's much more buttoned down. It's much more conservative. There's, you know, there's no uh, that quote unquote models and models, and I think the industry is better off for it as a result. And um, but yeah, it was it was quite different from from what I expected. Even the work product was very different, but I learned a ton and, and really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I I think in terms of just the path you took where I was actually shocked that you only got one reply back after 70 cold, cold calls. I, cause for maybe me, I didn't know how to write an email yet. I mean, that's quite, it's quite possible, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was daunting. I, I thought for sure, okay, I'm willing to give up a, a good job at, at Siemens and to do this for free in what I believe to be a lucrative industry, which is a lucrative industry. And, uh, I can't even get an email back, right. Yeah. To, to say, Hey, I'll work for free. So it was pretty daunting, but you know, uh, call it hubris. I just stuck with it and, and yeah. I just kind of break my way in. Yeah, no, I think perseverance is actually a big factor of people achieving what they want. Like, uh, because if, when I was first getting my shot at the buy side, I think I cold emailed 60 to 70 buy side managers myself too. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, maybe it's an industry thing. I don't know, but I, I had a hit rate of around 30%. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I spoke to about 20, 20 to 30 by some managers in Toronto. I got to get you to start writing the emails when we reach out to new entrepreneurs. <laughs> maybe, that's maybe. Higher than, uh, <laughs> that's higher than our hit rate, for sure. But yeah, so I, but I think, though, like that kind of, it teaches you something, right? It teaches you to grit. It teaches you how to just constantly keep at something. Right. And I think even like even in like the MBA path, like coming from my kind of consulting background, a lot of my friends all think about MBAs. Like every consultant thinks about being mm-hmm. an MBA because mm-hmm. it's just so normal. And I think 
when people ask me like, oh, should I do an MBA, Dan? I was like, that's why, why do you want to do it? And like reasons like what you did, where it's just very focused. Like I want to do investment banking. And here the facts show that 30% of MBA grads go to investment banking, right. 30% go to consulting. And it's very focused compared to some people who just go and say, I don't know, I just want kind of God to hit me with lightning and tell right. me like, you are destined to do this <laughs> and then just kind of go with it. Right. Which is not how, you know, I think I get, I do a lot of chats with, um, with undergrads and, and, and post undergrads that are, you know, call it the analyst level at investment banks or, mm-hmm. you know, even uh, at the accounting firms, consultancies, et cetera, say, you know, should I get an MBA? I'm thinking about getting an MBA and I'll ask the same, well, why, right? What, what is it? What is it you're looking to get? And, you know, and I'll liken to my experience. What I needed was I needed this signal to the market to say, hey, don't look at, you know, the kid I was in terms of my grades, but look at the, you know, the person I've become and I can get into an MBA program. I can score well on the GMAT, et cetera, et cetera. My grades are good, blah, blah, blah. And I can present okay. But I knew I couldn't get the audience to present to you without that. Right. So it was, I was young when I did it and it was, uh, it was, I shouldn't say it was an, you know, an expensive risk, but you know, it was certainly a capital, I was allocating a lot of capital. I was giving up income and I was spending a lot of income and we're spending a lot of dough. So I think that certainly played, played in, um, into it for me. Uh, but overall, you know, I think you, you end up getting the NBA because, you know, it provides that window, but what it also does, and I think that I'm seeing more of that now and I'm certainly appreciating more of that now in my network is my MBA, you know, classmates, right? And, and um, U of T is a bit different because people tend to stay in Toronto. It doesn't have that kind of global dispersion that, you know, call it a, a Harvard will have where, you know, you have people from all over the world going to Harvard and then they go back, right? right. So they'll go to New York, they'll go to LA, they'll go to Toronto, they'll go to Vancouver, they'll go to Hong Kong. They'll, you kind of have that global network. With U of T, you have a, a far more localized network, um, but it's it's played out well, you know, it, I still do a lot of work with uh, do a lot of work with my my classmates and you know I, I certainly approach them with problems and you know things of that nature some of them are my investors actually so it's it's worked out well but I think you have to have a targeted approach to why you want to do it because it you know it, to do it just to do it doesn't make a ton of sense and it's probably a, a poor allocation of capital but you know at the same time you're you're improving yourself and if you've got you know if, if you can justify it then why not mm-hmm. yeah no i totally agree and so you know you're at rbc um in the financial sponsors team and so to get to kind of clarify my limited knowledge so that team your clients are purely like private equity firms or like buy side clients and yes you're helping them uh is it just raise more capital to go about with their acquisitions yeah so it's it's primarily you know we're, we're on the debt side of the equation for the most part there right so we'll do a lot of we would do i still speak like i'm i'm there but uh we would do a lot of debt raises for them and work on that uh you know at rbc we're one of the few banks actually at the time the only bank that could really had access to or have really had access to the u.s institutional debt market because you know we had a large presence in the capital markets in the u.s um, but did a lot of that and then did some sell side work as well for portfolio companies that were spinning, spinning out of a fund, um, worked on, uh, you know, looked at some, some IPO stuff as well for exits, but I mean, they're not really hiring you for buy side advice because that's what they get paid for. Um, but, uh, yeah, got to touch a myriad of, you know, aspects of a transaction, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think that I call, um, banking, consulting, audit, kind of more platform jobs. Like there are things that you go in when you're young to do for a couple of years and 
hopefully to do something else. Most people don't go into right. those and like stay there for long term. And I think it's good to see what your queer clients are because then it kind of leads to a higher possibility or probability that you end up in that space because generally your clients will kind of take you because it's a people hiring people business and right. people want to take people that they know. Like, yeah, like when I was an auditor, I was like, yeah, I don't really want to be on the client side. I don't want to be a controller. Right. And you go to consulting, you see, okay, do I want to be on the strategy side and vice versa, I think. And so I can definitely understand how for you, like, yeah, the private equity side was just very purely obvious in that perspective. Right. And, but after that, you went to Dental Corp instead of starting Golden Spruce right off the gate. Yeah. What was the uh, rationale behind that? Yeah, I think part of it for me was, um, you know, right place, right time. Uh, I had worked on the um, debt raise for Dental Corp when Imperial Capital and OP Trust made the, uh, made the investment in the business. I worked on the acquisition financing, so got to know the management team there, built a good relationship with them. And uh, they had approached me to lead their partnership development side, so their, their business development. So effectively, um, you know, I was flying around the country speaking to dentists, right, and trying to buy their practice. Um, but I worked hand in hand with the Corp Dev guys where, you know, they were doing the execution and I was doing the deal sourcing and the relationship building, et cetera. Uh, a lot of miles, a lot, you know, in my last, in my last six months, Actually, not even, yeah, yeah, uh, six months. I flew 75,000 miles exclusively in Canada. Um, and I didn't have many flights to Vancouver. So there was a lot, like I would do three or four flight segments a week. Um, and it got to a point where, you know, I wasn't, wasn't getting younger. Uh, I wanted to, wanted to make the transition out. But the reason I, I ultimately decided to go to Dental Corp before starting uh, starting Golden Spruce Capital, not that I had a, a crystal ball, but I was I was young at the time. I think it was uh, when I left for Dental Corp, that would have been in 2015. So, you know, pre-30. And um, I knew that, you know, I didn't quite have the small business experience that I needed to really be able to, you know, hold hand to heart and, and look an entrepreneur in the, in the eye and say, hey, I've been part of this before. Um so I wanted to I wanted to get that smaller business experience, and Dental Corp was a you know a company that was growing hand over fist very very quickly. You know when I started, I think there were I want to say around 30, um, 30 people in head office, and when I left a year later, there were seventy five. So seeing that growth and seeing the the infrastructure kind of grow at the same time um, ended up being very very valuable for me because it's it's something I can relate to, you know, the owner operators I'm chatting with just because most of the business we speak to are growing pretty well, you know, not, not a hundred percent a year, but call it 25 to 30% a year. Uh, and understanding that challenge have been part of it. And I, I knew that that would be important, not to mention, you know, there's certain perks of working for a very big firm that you don't have going to a smaller company, which is something I needed to get used to. I didn't have an assistant, right? I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't have a, an analyst running and making photocopies. I didn't have a desktop publishing team putting presentations together for me. I mean, you're kind of rolling up your sleeves and really doing it all yourself. And that was a nice way to kind of, you know, dip the toe in the water and say, okay, let's get used to this first. Um, not that, you know, not that I require that kind of coddling, but you get used to it, right? And the expense account, et cetera. And I knew that ultimately I would have to get away from that if I wanted to go in the small business, small business realm. Uh, and I think it, I think it paid off and it got to a point where, you know, I was, Flying around the country and convincing, yeah, sure, dentists and you know they're they're 
business owners and operators as well. And I was flying around and I was convincing them to, you know, do a deal, uh, do a deal with us. And here's all the reasons why. And, you know, Lathan and I had stayed in, in contact and had become, you know, stayed friends over the, over the years. And I'd always kind of touched in, you know, touch base every, every quarter or so to say, Hey, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And it got to a point where I said, you know, there was some life circumstance stuff where I said, Hey, you know, I think, I think now is a good time. I think, you know, I'm, I'm beaten up enough now that I can, you know, I can go out in the market. I'm, I've got just enough gray hair, uh, to, to, I think be taken a little more seriously. And, you know, it's something nice about being 30 because you can say you're in your thirties, which I know sounds ridiculous, but you know, when you're talking to business owners that are in their fifties and sixties, oftentimes we'll get asked the question, how, so how old are you? And you could say, I'm in my 30s, right? Uh, it sounds silly, but it, it, it makes a difference because their kids are in their 20s. And you might only be 18 months apart, but in your 20s versus in your 30s sounds very different. So I found that was quite helpful. So it felt like it was the right time. You know, we, we had we had support from who are now our, our anchor, our you know anchor investors and families. Um, we had their support. We've been told a couple of times, hey, if you guys ever look to do this, we'd love to deploy some capital behind you, which we said, great. Um, we said now's the right time, and you know, uh, Lace background is excellent. It's it's operational. He was at McKinsey for a number of years after investment banking, so he brings a lot of the strategy and the operational piece to you know to the forefront, and and I brought more of kind of the deal and the finance piece, and slowly it's kind of melded into one, and it's been a very cohesive partnership. So it just worked out well, right place, right time, and um, made a it was an aggressive leap though. I mean, it's tough to tough to cut off all, all income sources and say, hey, I'm going to go ahead and and bet on myself. And that's where we're a bit different from a search fund because we were self-financed. So we actually put our own capital up to say, we're going to go out and find deals and we're going to take the risk on them. And we're going to be the ones, you know, uh, spending money on the accountants, spending money on the lawyers. That's us. It's not our investors if the deal doesn't go through. And, you know, we had one of those where the deal didn't go through and it was our necks out there, right? And it was our wallets that were that were funding it. So it was a, it was a big leap, um, but, you know, hey, it, it panned out or else we wouldn't be chatting. Yeah, no, I, that's a, that's definitely like a great story I, that I definitely I'm going to dig a fur, dig further into. But um, no, I think that the saying you're, you're in your 30s is actually a, a very big deal. Um, obviously, like our our generation, like especially like the millennials coming up, they might get upset hearing them saying, oh, that's so ageist and how can you judge people mm-hmm. like that? But yeah, like when I was in consulting, I, I heard about partners purposely graying their hair just to be respected and right. it like as someone that looks like he's 16 <laughs> i i i think it yeah it's definitely don't count yourself you look at least 18 all right thanks, at least man. 18. thank you i appreciate that um but yeah i think that does kind of play a part especially in the people business where you're trying to make connections with other people and trying to convince them of, of your competence right and i think i think it, it's certainly you know it's it's primarily the first meeting. I'll, I'll never forget one of the, the first in-person meetings we had when, you know, we had Golden Spruce Capital. I had driven out to West Toronto and met a, met a fellow who um, owned a, a factory of sorts. He manufactured things. And I came to the front said, hi, it's, it's Sam here to see, you know, we'll call him John for the purpose of this conversation. It's yeah. Sam here to see John. Great. And we had been back and forth by email saying, okay, John, we're going to, you know, meet this day and looking forward to meeting you, blah, blah, blah. We had a couple couple phone calls. And uh, so John gets to the front. He says, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I said, yeah, you as well. He said, uh, is, is your boss Sam going to be coming? 
And uh, I said, yeah, he is. He said, oh, great. He said, you know, soon? I said, no, he's here. I'm Sam. You know, I'm, and, uh, you know, it was a bit of a laugh and, you know, you, those things are common, but it was, it was quickly there. Like if you can't, if you need to be over 30 after that point to, you know, to be heard in the room, you're probably not communicating properly. It was, it's, it's always been the first point of interaction. And after the fact, you know, you've got to be able to communicate your point and whether you're 17 or 80, if you're ineffective, you're ineffective, right? So it really is that initial that initial meeting, and then after that, it wears off. It's a good thing that my partner has a lot more grades than I do, so it, it, adds, <laughs> it adds more credibility. For those who don't know, my part my partner's sitting about twenty feet away from me, and my yeah feet <laughs> up, and uh, he's I'm probably gonna hear about that one after. <laughs> and um, uh, you talked about how yeah, so Golden Spruce in the beginning, you thought about you know the idea initially came out from oh the search fund model is interesting and. For the audience that are not familiar with the search fund, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong from my understanding as well, but the, the way I understand it is that generally it's practically you raise a bunch of money um, from other investors and with that money you have about a two-year window to mm-hmm. go out and buy a business, um, just all of it. Uh, usually it tends to be a, more of an older style business, like a big factory or something, and then once you buy it, you move your entire life to where that company is whether it's like north carolina or something right. and then you just operate it as the new ceo so that's the traditional kind of search fund model from my understanding mm-hmm. um did i miss anything there yeah the, on- the only nuance is so you you know you'll typically raise what they refer to as search capital which pays for your you know you pay yourself a nominal salary and uh it pays for your travel expenses when you have to go out and meet you know entrepreneurs and you know take them out to dinner etc and and pay for accounting fees on broken deal costs etc so that that gets covered by the quote-unquote search search um, fund component or search capital when you actually find a business though the difference is that that capital hasn't been raised yet so now what you have to do is you go back to your funders and say hey i found one um do you want to participate? And they have the choice to say yes or no. If they say no, um, that doesn't stop you from do, doing the deal. You, they just have the first option. You can then go outside of them and raise the capital. But their search capital will get promoted into the deal. And, you know, the, the market's changing. But, you know, anyone listening to this can go to the Stanford, you know, Stanford Business School website. And they've got the, it's called the Search Fund Primer. Uh, it kind of explains the traditional model, but yeah, the, the traditional model is exactly that. And then, you know, you find a business in, in, you know, Wisconsin and you buy it and you fly down there and you're now, you know, the, again, the traditional, traditionally you're the CEO of the business, you're the president of the business, whatever, and you're running it. and now you're an operator, but you're, you're no longer looking to actively acquire because you're day to day in a business and running a business. Mm-hmm. And generally, um, from you, what you've seen, how much does the search capital really like cost to go out, find a business, all that? Yeah, you know, I think it it depends how you travel, right? Like, I think, um, and and how you spend. Like, you know, um, we we were pretty we're pretty diligent on our on our expense side. Just, I mean, I think I'd like to think that we'd be this way even if we had search capital. I mean, I'm actually certain we would be, um, but you know, we were we spent time looking for an office lease, right? We didn't rush into it and say, you know, we want the one on the 30th floor with, with windows and, you know, overlooking, you know, Lake Ontario. No, we're, you know, we're like, no, this one works well. We have four desks, which is great for us and, and interns. 
Um, it's sure it's in a basement. Who cares, right? We're good. We can work from a basement. Does that have internet? Yes. Okay, great. So I think it really depends on, on your approach to things. Um, as it relates to deal costs and things like accounting and, and legal, I think your expenses, where, where things start to get quote unquote expensive is when you have broken deal costs. That's because if you get the deal done, you know, uh, a few hundred thousand dollars in, in legal and accounting fees, depending on the size of your deal is fine. It's, it's where you don't get the deal done that you still have to pay that amount. Um, then now you've kind of depleted it. But I think on average, most, you know, most folks are raising, you know, four to 500 grand for, for a two year fund. Um, and that's, you know, that's probably one partner though. If you have two partners, maybe 750, uh, for the search capital piece. And, you know, if you happen to acquire in month three and you've only spent 200 grand of that, the 550 gets returned to investors in, in, in most models I've seen. Mm-hmm. And for, but for you, uh, you and Nathan, you guys decided, okay, no, we're going to use our own capital. Mm-hmm. And when you find something, then you were going to go back to your fund investors and say, okay, we're ready. Like we have something. And that's when you decide to raise a fund. Yeah. It, well, it wasn't even raise a fund. So an independent sponsor will go and, you know, find the deal, negotiate the deal. And then approach investors and say, Hey, here are the deal terms. Here's the business, right? It's back to almost back to our banking days. Except we actually have to, you know, think about the strategy, but here's the business. Here's how we think we can help. Here's where we think it can grow. Um, here's, you know, the, the, the famous the infamous model, right? Cause we can predict seven years into the future, but based on what we've understood, here's, you know, here's what the business is going to look like in five years based on some of the things that, you know, low hanging fruit and the operational levers we believe we can pull. Um, and, uh, you know, here are the deal terms and here's what you want to invest on and, you know, minimum investment X. And if you want to let us know, we'd love to allocate some room for you. If not, that's okay. We'll show you the next one where, where it was a bit different for us was, you know, we funded that our, we funded the search component ourselves. Um, and one of the reasons we did that one, we were a little, we were a little older than your typical, um, search fund investor, although that's changing a little bit. I know some some folks that are doing this, uh, you know, out west in, in Calgary that are, you know, seasoned, uh, seasoned uh, folks and you know, men and women, um, as well as in the States. But the traditional model really came out of Stanford that, okay, you graduate from your MBA uh, after having done banking and then done your MBA. And now you're going to go out and buy a business. So it's, it's a bit it's a bit different. Now. So I think I, I know of more people that are going the self-financed route. I didn't know at the time when we did it that there were a lot of guys actually in speaking with our lawyer who's you know, the box on, on search funds in Canada, he said, you know, not many guys are doing this. And, you know, he was actually advising us to do the opposite, but the thesis worked out because the, one of the reasons we wanted to do that was we didn't want to pin ourselves to economic terms prior to getting the deal done. Right. And, um, you know, typically you, you, you agree on a certain economic term for, for yourselves as the, as the searchers that says, okay, I will, you know, do, you know, I'll get 20%, you know, two and 20 kind of traditional model or the most common in search funds is kind of 10, 10, 10, 10 being on, uh, 10 being on, being on time, 10 being on performance and 10 being on, it's slipped my mind. I want to say getting the deal done. Um, they get right off the, right off the bat. Um, whereas with us, we said, okay, well, if we've got a, you know, we want to be flexible and a lot of the reasons deals weren't getting done with search funds was, you know, they couldn't make that 10, 10, 10 work. Right. So we heard of a couple of scenarios where there were, there were people invested in the fund 
that would see a you know see an investment an investment memo and would love it. And then the searcher would say, we just can't make this work, which is fair. I mean, you know, they're committing themselves to the business for five years and they need to make an income as well and they need to make a return on the thing. And, you know, typically they've left lucrative careers. So if you look at something that's going to pay you a million dollars over five years and you left 500 grand a year, the, the returns aren't quite there. So you need something that kind of offsets that. Um, and what we, you know, what kind of was one of the light bulbs for us was we spoke to a couple guys that were invested in these search funds in the search capital piece that had seen the investment memo. The searcher said, we can't do it, it's not big enough, or we can't do it, the returns just don't make sense for us. And the investor went out and said, okay, well, I'm gonna go ahead and do this on my own then, right? When I saw that, I said, okay, the person providing the capital still wants to do it, but you can't make it work. So, okay, well, there has to be an intersection there where the person providing the capital is willing to give you better terms to do the deal until that deal doesn't become you know lucrative enough for the investor and or the or, and, and or the searcher um, and the way we got around it which you know isn't isn't that you know um, isn't that designed but it's pretty simple was well let's go ahead and not take search capital and we'll figure out what economics we need to make work on every deal and you know if we're too aggressive we'll let the market decide and we won't be able to sell it and if we're not aggressive enough it'll be really easy to raise and that's okay it's our first deal um but that was the main reason that we did that was we want to be able to look at different types of deals smaller deals right on a bigger deal you can go less on the economic side because it makes sense but smaller deals you can find some fantastic businesses that are less you know less competitive to go after that are really great that can actually use our help in professionalizing and, and really adding some of that you know adding some of that fuel to the fire um, versus that, you know, $7 million EBITDA business where we're competing with your more traditional Torquests and, you know, not quite Burchill, but Imperial Capital, et cetera. Um, you know, we're candidly, if we win that, if we win that auction, we might have done something wrong. They've got more resources than us. The smaller side, it's more relationship based. It's more, it's, it's less institutionalized, less professionalized business that they care about what happens to their, you know, to their baby. Because oftentimes these businesses preclude their children. Um, and it's just, you know, it was an interesting space to play. We wanted the ability to be flexible. Do we look at high growth companies or low growth companies? And this gives us the opportunity to say, okay, well, with a low growth company that we're going to hold longer, maybe we change our economic model. So it's more, you know, it's, we can find the investors who want to do this deal because there's an investor who's looking for yield, as you know, there's also investors that want, you know, cap growth, right? So we wanted to be able to do both and be flexible and, and be nimble with the market and not really put ourselves in a box and self-financing certainly helped do that. Yeah, I think in, you know, in hindsight, I think that is the very, um, in, in one sense, it's kind of being like the good steward of capital. Like uh, I think even in the public equity side, there are managers like Munish Pai and like Buffett also is a very big advocate of this, of, of you know, not taking management fees and only being paid on performance and being the one to be, you know, you risk your own capital and you put your neck out there and you really eat your own cooking that right. way. But yeah, I think it's, it could even like, like I'm trying to imagine it, it must be probably, probably really like, daunting to know that, yeah, like if, if this deal fails and it's, it's on us and like all the pressure from that. Yeah, it is. And you know, I, I certainly don't want to classify the guys who are doing the search, guys and girls who are doing the search funds as, you know, being inherently uh, greedy because that isn't the case. Right. I think it's, you know, we, we were we were fortunate enough to, as I mentioned, be a little grayer, a little more beaten up where we had, you know, um, we had the capital to be able to risk to do it. Not to mention, you know, at the time we were, were both single, no children, not married. 
um, you know, no, not a ton of overhead, right? Like we live pretty lean. Um, so we had the good fortune of doing that. You know, if you've got two kids and, you know, you're married or whether you're not married, who knows, but you own a house and you've got a bunch of overhead, you look at that and say, okay, well, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to ask for a quarter of a million a year, but you know, 80 grand a year, let me just keep the lights on. Right. And, um, so the, the, it's not an, it's not inherent grief. It's just, we were, we were fortunate enough to say, Hey, we've got interesting life circumstances here that we're both able to take a risk and, and, and do it. Yeah. And I think that's like your situation and the kind of life to lead those can actually be competitive advantages that if the people you know want to really utilize it you can actually utilize it to your strength that right. other people not might not be able to and so then you know you decide to say okay we're gonna use our own capital but how did you go about um getting the backers like getting the people um convincing the people to eventually fund this acquisition like how does that work because you know i'm trying to think like you know what what would someone say if, if uh, an MBA kid who just graduated with some banking experience came up to him and said, "Hey, I want to do a search fund. Can you back me out?" Right. Yeah. No. It's a uh, you know again the the Stanford Primer has some pretty good um, some some pretty good pointers on that. There's another book uh, by HBR that is um, yes. Think Big, Buy Small. Uh, that's great and is a, is a nice step by step on here's how to do it. I think you know. Um, Laith and I were fortunate in that you know, we had the opportunity to work with some high net worth individuals over our careers, um, as well as have, you know, some have kind of fallen into our networks as friends, professionally, et cetera, uh, that we really didn't raise any institutional money. Like there was no, there was never a point where we said, hey, here's who we are. Um, until until later on where, you know, we start to get a little more strategic around, hey, it would be really great to bring in an investor from this geography who has experience in these businesses. Then there was a, hey, here's who we are. But for the initial support, it was really, you know, folks that we had worked with and former mentors that we said, hey, this is what we're looking to do. And they said, you know, we're 100% in. And that one of the benefits of that is they know how we work. They know what we're good at. They know what we're not good at. Um, but there wasn't much of like, uh, you know, my name is Sam and, and, and that, that piece. Um, Whereas I know a lot of the traditional searchers do have to go that path and, and that's okay too, right? There's a ton of capital out there looking to fund, um, you know, smart young people to do this or smart people in general, it doesn't need to be young, but smart people who are willing to do this. And we haven't gotten into this piece, but the reason is, you know, if you look at the valuation of public markets, right, it's tough to deploy capital in it, you know, it's tough to deploy capital in this market. It is. Um, and if you look at the cost of capital and, and how cheap money is right now and the amount of money that's out there chasing everything, it's tough. If you talk to anyone who works at a, a larger private equity fund, they'll say deploying capital, um, deploying capital into, you know, the $20 million plus EBITDA companies is now tough. You're, you know, a 20% IRR net of fees for a PE fund these days is not you know, is not easy to come by. I think most guys are bidding down to, you know, high teens and high teens is probably good in certain circumstances. I mean, I remember there was a deal that I looked at, uh, and this is four, four years ago, three, sorry, three or four years ago, um, when I was still in banking that, you know, there was a, a very large asset with two parties involved. And I won't mention either the asset or the parties, but you know, a billion dollar plus check and it got bid down to, you know, low, low teens, like 12, 13%. So not even teens in this certain case, but 12, 13% IRR. 
because um, they need to deploy. They do need to deploy wow. because you have a lot of capital sitting there. So it's getting tougher to deploy large amounts of capital and getting your return is, is, is tougher. So if you're an investor and you say, okay, I, I still would like 20 plus percent yield in certain cases, the smaller deals are, are higher, call it 25, 30% plus yield after fees. I just don't have the time to run around and chase these things on my own, right? And it's tough to have the infrastructure of a private equity fund where you've got partners and you've got VPs and principals and associates and analysts running around doing that, writing, you know, writing 10, 20 million dollar checks in terms of total value, in terms of equity, you know, half of that, right? Five to 10. You look at that, you're like, okay, well, I don't, I can't generate a management fee to cover the infrastructure costs of doing that. So what they need to do is they have to find some younger folks that that is a lot of money for the younger folks who say, okay, well, I'll operate really lean. I'll do it myself and we'll take your capital. So we'll take your capital and invest in there you want. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of demand from the investor side to say, Hey, we want exposure to these deals. Um, we're getting told by investors that, Hey, I have friends that would like to get into the next deal you guys do. So it's not for lack of capital. It's really, you know, picking your spots and finding the opportunities you want to chase down because there are a lot of opportunities. There's also a lot of people chasing them. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the, the one really nice thing about our se- section of our segment of the market is there still very much is that personal touch, which is, you know, the feel, the relationship because there is a, an emotional attachment to the business that in a larger company you don't necessarily have. Uh, where, you know, if, you're, if your fund mandate is to be highest price at all times, and you know, this isn't, I'm not spitting wisdom here, I think everyone knows this, but if you're winning because you're highest bid constantly, um, either you're that much smarter than everyone else that so you can underwrite higher risk and underwrite to a different return, or um, you're just kind of paying for access. And I think, in our segment of the market, we don't have to do that. We can go, um, we don't need to be top bidder. We can build a relationship and, and really develop that uh, rapport with the owner where they trust the fact that the company is going to be in very good hands and you know we're, we're not going to tear it apart. We're going to help it grow. And that's what we're really, really interested in. So that's the interesting segment of our market. And that's why, you know, going full circle, why approaching investors is less daunting than, than one would think. I, I mean, I remember our first calls, you know, I had 10, 10 people that I knew I wanted to go out to, I had good relationships with. And, and I said, you know what, if I can get, this is kind of proof of concept time. I said, if I can get four or five of them to say they're interested, it's great. Um, and it was over the course of like three days, you know, 10 phone calls slash meetings, a lot of coffee over those days. And um, I had 10 people said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, granted, Who's going to say no to a free option? But they were supportive, and you know they've they've all proven to be supportive even through the first acquisition, which was great, where they had to put their money where their mouth was. Um, but it worked out, and I don't think that's a special circumstance because we're you know we're extraordinary people. I think it, it's a function of the market, and I think it's you know back to that concept of signaling. It's a function of here's what we've done in the past, which means we you know we're not we're not absolute zeros, right? We, we bring something to the table and. And we have some chops and at the very least we can build good relationships and find good businesses and you have the option to say, yes, I'd like to invest. Here's how much or no, this one isn't for me. No, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, so now you have your investors and you alluded to how, yeah, there's, you pick your spots, your area of competence and or your circle of competence mm-hmm. and you start to look in different areas. And so, you know, you've segmented down to, okay, size, we're going to go out to smaller companies. 
and you decided to not go with the search phone model where you just completely buy something up, but rather that, or you buy something up, but you are not acquiring just one company, but the idea is to acquire multiple companies. And sometimes it might not even be that you're losing a CEO in terms of like you're buying a company and the founder's running away. Sometimes it could just be the founder still stays on, mm-hmm. but they could actually realize the value. And so how did that business model um, develop and how did the thought process work for that? Yeah, you know, I thought I think when we first started, we we were willing to be flexible. Back to that concept of flexibility. We were willing to be flexible and nimble. And what we said was, you know, our job is to generate a return for the people who back us. That's our job. Hard stop. That doesn't mean that, you know, we have to write a $3 million check or a $20 million check. It just means we need to generate a return, right? And find a deal that we can sell. So when we first started, we were really flexible around, you know, do we step into a management role, right? And we said, we'll look at companies that we have to do that. There's two of us. That means that we can do two deals reasonably until we get the next level of infrastructure in place and then separate ourselves out. So the idea was always to do more than one. Um, it just so happened, you know, we, we just made a, an investment in a fantastic, you know, uh, Toronto-based business here called New Sales. And, um, you know, management stayed on. And it was, uh, it was a really great deal, really cohesive partnership. Um, you know, really energetic management team that wanted, you know, wanted an investment from a strategic, I mean, we're not a strategic group, but from a party that brings some, some value aside from just money, because that's not really what they were looking for. Um, and it worked out really, really well. So, I mean, in that scenario where we've got a, you know, a management team that's incredibly competent and can take the business to the next level, but wanted to complement their skill set to say, hey, would love some attention in these areas where we think we can create some value. We looked and said, this is a, this is an ideal scenario. I mean, they're, they're literally, you know, four blocks from where we're sitting right now doing it. And that's, you know, it, was, it, it kind of back to that concept of it kind of came together. I mean, it really did come together in this scenario where, you know, it was the right location, right age management team, right scenario where what they were looking for, we could provide, uh, built a great relationship, um, but also allowed us to say, okay, great, we're gonna we're gonna help grow this business. I'm gonna grow like crazy, um, you know. And, and management's already doing a fantastic job of that. And I mean, we're trying to, you know, we're inserting ourselves where where it makes sense. Um, but it also allows us to sooner, you know, or, you know, or more quickly relieve ourselves of, okay, we're not just gonna look at this asset. We're gonna actually go out and look to do another one. And um, it just it worked out well. Uh, we were flexible and we still are flexible. And I think that that, you know, that helped us. Having said that, for anyone who's listening to this, uh, and I know you have a lot of subscribers, so I shouldn't say anyone, but anyone who's still on listening to me drone on, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that you'll, you'll find the, you'll find a lot of opportunities. You'll find a lot of opportunities to deploy capital. You'll find a lot of opportunities to, um, to get involved in management. I think picking your spots is really, really important and making sure that your first deal makes a ton of sense is really important. And there are a lot of businesses out there, really great businesses that, you know, capital can be deployed into and, and candidly, there's a lot of room in the market, right? This isn't a, this isn't a predatory market. This is actually a segment of the market where, you know, we're grabbing a coffee or beer with a bunch of other groups that are doing the same thing as us because there is enough room 
we're helpful. We throw deals their way if, you know, it doesn't make sense for us for a number of reasons and they do the same. So it's a, it's a really friendly environment and one that isn't, isn't predatory and there's a ton of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And now as you go into more, I guess, um, just like how when, before you went into investment banking, you had a thought of, this is probably what they do. And then when you went into it, you realized this is what you actually end up doing. <laughs> so what, what do your friends think you do with Golden Spruce and what do you actually do? Well, you know, I'll, I'll start, I'll go, uh, I'll go higher level on this All right, because yeah. it's a funny story. So when I first, you know, I'm, I'm the, uh, I'm the product of, uh, of Italian immigrants, right? They moved, my parents moved to, um, to Canada, but they were, they were both fairly young, but you know, there's, there's a certain mentality there, right? There's a certain mentality of get a job security and, and that's what you do. Um, and I remember telling my, telling my mother, Hey, you know, Hey mom, this is what, you know, what I'm looking to do. And she said, so, okay, hang on, let me get this straight. You're going to run around and talk to business owners. Yeah. Uh-huh. Follow. Okay. And then you're going to tell them you're going to buy their company. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're going to, you're going to determine what to pay for that company. I was like, yes. Okay. They're going to agree to sell to you. Yes. You're then going to go out and raise millions of dollars to buy this company. Yeah. You know, Sam, I think you're nuts, right? Like, I mean, if, if you're just like, you know, I think it was the first time that I saw my mom in my mom's eyes. He, he's lost it. He's completely lost it. And my uncle, who's a chef, I had a very similar conversation where you just see this like real concern enter their eyes. We're like, I'm not talking to someone who's mentally sound. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just a, a funny story there. But w what we do, what we do is, is really, I, I like to think we build, at least in the initial stages, build relationships first and foremost. I mean, we've walked away from deals that we, the price was right, the returns look good, just didn't feel good about the potential partners. And maybe for someone else, they were a great fit. But for us, it just didn't feel right. We, you know, a lot of this is not to go Soros. Like I wake up with a, you know, a, 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 an upset stomach, and as a result, I don't do the deal. But a lot of this is how do I feel about working with this person? Because if you can't get a good partnership in, in good times, uh, there's going to be bad times, and it's only going to get way worse, right? So you know, a lot of what we do is relationship building. A lot of what we do, it's actually really exciting because what we really get to do is we get to be students of industries every day, right? Where we get to talk to an expert in the field every time we talk to a new business. And you know, you take that little learning and you apply it to the next one, you get smarter on the space and smarter. And we get to talk, you know, from the fashion industry to the most random thing we've been approached to do is finance a movie. By the way, we didn't do either of those things, but you know, that's really interesting. Like, you know, we know how both those things work. So I'd say we're really building relationships for students of industry and slowly we're becoming, you know, subject matter experts in certain spaces. Um, and then the part that would probably surprise the people the most is, is post-close. Okay. Now what do you do? Right. How do you, how do you help? How do you help the management team here? How do you help, uh, realize value and, and picking your spots, but it's, it's a lot more sensitive. It's a lot more. And again, this is, this is how I approach and I've, I've always been a little more relationship driven, but there's a lot of soft touch to it because you, you have a management team that's competent. They built it, right? So you can't fly in and say, Hey, I know how to do this and I know how to fix it, get out of the way. Um, and I, I honestly think people who do that probably end up destroying more value than creating value. We also don't invest in distressed companies. We invest in companies who are doing very, very well. And it's almost a, how do you slowly help, right? Or softly help 
without getting into the getting in the way of the captain. Let him the, let him steer the ship. So that's been the that's been the part that's probably been the most surprising. Granted, it's the newest for us, but figuring out that dynamic and um, how do we you know how do we help? Where can we help? Um, that's the part that you know we're I shouldn't say we're figuring it out in real time. We're we're doing it in real time, right? Um, but that I, I'd say that that's the the thing that people would be most surprised about is it's not just you don't get the deal done and then run and go do your next one, right? It's you've got to really understand the company. It's not as simple as saying okay, buy here's my limit, boom, got it done, and now I'm gonna sell and it does twenty percent. Like it's got to do twenty percent, and we have responsibility to a lot of folks to make sure it does twenty percent, or in in this case, a hell of a lot more than twenty percent. But uh, you know. I'd say that's it, but yeah, no, I, every time I, uh, every time I, and someone asks me what I do, I always think about my mom asking me that question, just not, you know, not understanding. It was just hilarious. <laughs> and I think, yeah, like people would only see the end product, right? They just see that, oh, you did a deal. Nice. Good on you. Now right. you're probably looking at the next deal. But like you said, it's been about two years uh, of running Golden Spruce and the deal that just you said it recently kind of closed mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. you've had that kind of at least a year and a half period of just talking to companies mm-hmm. non-stop and how is how is that kind of like typical day like um if you had to run through like a monday um looking at companies and all that yeah you know i i've always hated when you know i remember an mba and i asked people yeah, or someone would ask what's your typical day to a banker consultant they're like well there is no typical day and now I'm about to say it, so I won't say it that way. What I'll say is every day is different. Right. Um, you know what I what uh, we have we have interns this summer. We ran an internship program, which was fantastic. We had you know um, five really quality people in the office. Uh, sorry, four really quality people in the office. Um, in in uh, in addition to Lathan and myself, um, and that was a bit different. It was a little more structured, but really we're on the phone most days um, with entrepreneurs. We do a lot of outreach. We reach out to, you know, we'll pick a pick an industry we really like um, for a number of reasons. We'll then sit down with one of our interns and we'll say, okay, this is the industry we're gonna focus on. Go out and find me, you know, the top 50 in your mind in this space, in these geographies, and then let's sit down and go through them and understand why it is you like them. So they get to learn how we think about what we like in the company. Um, and we also get, you know, labor that's helping us kind of build out our CRM, right? Um, so that's a, that's a big part of every day with the outreach, the outbound to build that, call it proprietary channel, that it doesn't come through boutique investment banks or the accountancies. Um, and then we're, we're having conversations with, with folks. Now it's different, right? Now it's different where I'd say we're probably, you know, my, the, the easy ratio because it's used all the time is 80-20. The 80-20 is flipped. Mm-hmm. So now 80% of the time we're, we're dedicated solely to, you know, ensuring that this asset continues to do really, really well and we're supporting. But there's going to be a period of time where that flips because we've got a really competent management team. We've put systems in place and that's humming and, and growing, you know, creating value for our investors. And now we're going to be spending, well, not now, but in the future we'll flip that. It'll be 20% of our time and 80% will be back to talking to entrepreneurs and doing, and doing all that good stuff. But the reality is, you know, you need a very full pipe and these things do take a lot of time, right? They take, that's one of the things I wouldn't have appreciated. And, and back to your question around, you know, what wouldn't your friends or someone really understand? It's not like buying a house, right? It's not like saying, okay, this thing's for sale. 
you're not on Amazon saying click to buy, right? One click to buy and, and you're done. It's, it's an incredibly detailed process. It's iterative. You have, you know, irrational people on both sides, right? Because we're human beings and we're, you're, we're, we're naturally irrational. Um, you have emotion running through that. You have cold feet. You've got, you know, you've got a number of things that come up and it's coming up every day that they do take a long time. So as a result, you've got to build out a pipeline and that pipeline needs to be robust. And, you know, you, you keep the pipeline going even through acquisition. So I'd say right now that 20% is really being spent on what were the active businesses and, and owners who were we talking to? And let's keep talking to them and let's keep, you know, working with them because if we were to sign a, you know, if we were to sign an LOI tomorrow, LOI being a letter of intent to purchase, um, non-binding, you know, I'd be, I'd be surprised if that, I'd be shocked if it were to happen in under four months, but if it were to happen in under six months, that'd be quick. Right. Wow. And that's with two parties that agree to, you know, to get together. If you think about the proprietary channel, you know, I, this is back in my days in, in dental corp where I really kind of thought about this and said, okay, I'm reaching out to someone who's not thought about selling. So they first need to be willing to entertain the conversation around it. Second, they need to be willing to wrap their head around selling. Third, they need to determine that we're the right party to sell to. And fourth, they need to determine that we've offered the right price. And there's a lot of things that go into that. So when you build out your proprietary channel, it takes a long time, but it's very valuable because that's where you can create real value and create long-term partnerships. Um, and you're not running through a process, so it doesn't come down to highest dollar, ideally. Um, you know, you, you don't want that to be the case, but we're all economic animals. So I think that 20% is going to be focused on managing those relationships that we currently have um, versus going out there and, and pounding down new doors, at least for the, you know, next next few months until we feel very, very confident that, you know, um, the portfolio company is performing well. I mean, you know, we've, we've staked our careers on this, right, and our reputation. Uh, and because we, you know, and I feel like we do the same thing if we went institutional, but we brought a lot of our, you know, mentors and our networks money to this deal. And as a result, you know, there's, this isn't, oh, if it goes bad, you know, we just walk away. No, this is a, you know, we care about it because we see these people regularly, not just to talk about the business, but even outside of that. So, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of care here and, and back to choosing our spots and picking our spots. That's why, you know, we took as long as we did to get to where we are. Um, we said no a hell of a lot more than we said yes. Wow. And for you personally, though, as, we are, as you're shifting now, you've, your 80-20 has shifted. Which side do you enjoy more? Like which, which side puts you more into like the flow state? Ooh, that's, a good, that's a really good question. Um, I'm still in the honeymoon phase, right? Still relatively early in terms of that, you know, in terms of the creating strategic value in the business. I find it really interesting. I love learning, right? And I love, you know, if I could get paid to be a student the way I want to get paid, I'd probably be a student, right? I, I just, I really enjoy learning. And I think right now I'm in a heavy learning phase of, of this where we're in the business, we're meeting all the managers and taking them out for coffee and learning about their roles and, and trying to figure out ways that we can make their lives easier to accelerate, you know, some of the initiatives that they have. That's really, really interesting. It's been fun. It's been nice to switch gears. So I think that certainly puts me in a flow state. But when I'm in most in my flow state, I'd say is is certainly when I'm uh, building relationships with people, right? And but that's not you know that's not limited or I shouldn't say that that's not mutually exclusive to 
deal sourcing versus you know post deal execution now actually implementing about creating value i really love interacting with people and i think that's one of the that's one of the areas you know i was giving a giving a talk at u of t last week and um i think that's one of the areas that often gets downplayed in our industry is that you know it really is a people-based business and you know the moment you make it solely about numbers I think you've gone, you've gone astray and, and you've started to play a dangerous game with, you know, financial engineering. I do think that this is a people-based business. It's based on relationships first and foremost, and then you see if you can make the economics work, right? But, you know, not surprising, if you've got a great relationship, the chances of making the economics work are a hell of a lot higher than if you're solely using the economics to lead the discussion, right? So I think that, you know, the people aspect, the soft aspect of this, the relationship aspect is the part I enjoy the most. And I think um, the part that often doesn't get talked about or thought about as much. No, yeah, I think it's, I think what you're saying is like, it really kind of hits the nail on the head in terms of how generally business is a people to people thing. And I think though, what I've found is in the investing world is like the higher you go up in the companies you buy, it tends to get more, focus on the economics and less on the relationships. And I think that's where the kind of the inefficiency comes mm-hmm. in where you just can't run an algorithm through. You right. just can't that decode the business in that sense. Like even in the public markets, you look at a micro cap compared to a large cap, way more inefficiency there and you talk to management, it actually matters. And I can only imagine that it's even more like more the magnitude is just greater mm-hmm. in the private sphere. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely the case. I think, you know, if you think about public markets certainly as you go large cap Look at the number of shareholders, right? Yeah. So if you can break the number of, uh, or not break, but increase the number of irrational people at the table that have smaller pieces, I think it actually decreases the the you know the emotional or the emotional nature of the decision to sell or buy. The moment you start to concentrate that, which you probably find more and more in small caps, certainly in private, where you know the business is in two or three people's hands. Um, and in small cap, you know, you're probably in, uh, I won't even throw out a number, but a hell of a lot less than when you're in a large cap. Um, it does become more driven by the personality of the person who owns it versus the other side, which is, okay, you've got a board who's now making a decision on behalf of the shareholders, unless you've got a very large shareholder who can ultimately make a recommendation and, you know, approve purchase, whatever. Um, with private, you don't have that. The, the board, you know, it's, you've got the jury and the executioners right in front of you at the table. And they can determine if they want to do it. And sometimes, you know, we are human beings. You have a conversation with someone who had a fight with their spouse that day, right? And they don't like you that day. Or, you know, you remind them of someone they don't like. Like, you know, there's there's those components, which are true for any business. It's just our business, the power tends to be concentrated far more to that person. Um which is just, it, it makes it interesting. It makes, it really does make every day quite different. And, and one of the really unique things with what we get to do is, you know, because I, we're, I have a partner in this, um, we're very different people. And there are some of the people we talk to are more like me. And some of the people we talk to are more like him. Um, and I find that really interesting to manage that dynamic as well. But I find because we're such, you know, we really are on, you know, our, the way we, you know, he relates to consult, we're a former a reform consultant, and we've talked about uh, talked about the concept of, uh, you know, Venn diagrams. Our Venn diagrams just touch, right? There's not a massive amount of overlap, which actually works out well, and I think it's the way you want to do it. But that's both from a skill set perspective, and I think they're slowly starting to merge a little bit, but we still have enough separation. 
but from a personality perspective, you know, I think they, they, they touch enough that we have commonality, but different enough where we can actually address a lot of the market and, and appeal to a lot of different people. And, um, and I think it, it works out really well that way. And it certainly makes every day really interesting. Yeah. And I think even in general, um, I think I forget the essays, but there's a, another like HBR essay on structuring teams properly. And it's like, yeah, you practically want all the right people on the bus who are of different skill sets and mm-hmm. cover your blind spots, your weaknesses and everything. And you actually want, that's what true diversity is. It's not really racial or right. gender specific. It's actually more skill and personality based. Yeah, you exactly. actually want diversity. Exactly. And I think, I think we've, you know, we've benefited from it in, you know, again, very small sample size, but I think we've benefited from it. It comes with the challenges too, because you do think about things very, very differently, right? And this right. is a partnership based business. Um, but I think net net we're we're far ahead for 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 being partners in this because you know I'll think one way about a business and he's like well you forgot about this whole piece right and very valid point or vice versa and I think having that natural check and balance for us if we thought the same way we both are blind in the same area right the blind spot reference that you just made I think is is so so true um, and it just again meeting different people working with different people. That really is the exciting part of the job for me. And, you know, he might have a different view on what's exciting for him. But although I think, you know, well, I know he really enjoys that component as well. Yeah. No. And as we kind of wrap up closer to the final legs of the interview, what um, what was like the largest obstacle that you and Leif faced in operating Golden Spruce Capital? Like you looked at it and you go, man, that, that, one, that piece required a lot of perseverance, like a lot of grit to get through. Well, you know, honestly, every deal takes so long, right? So, you know, the, the biggest piece of perseverance was really around, you know, we had a we had a deal go sideways a year ago. Uh, actually, a little over a year ago, but f- 14 months ago. And uh, we'd spent a ton of time, a ton of time on, on this asset. And our, you know... Uh, we were both really excited to do it. It would have been a very fast close from when we first started to get it done, which would have been really exciting. Love the business, great business, still is to this day, but some things changed at the final minute. We couldn't do the deal. And, you know, I remember that that next day after that deal was done, right, where, you know, you're so convinced you're going to do it, and you're like, you know, we're going to get over this hill. The next day, it was, you know, end of July, early August, I was like, okay, wow, we're, you know, we don't have any calls with lawyers. We don't have any calls with accountants. We don't have diligence to do in this asset anymore. It's done. Like it's gone. Um, what do we do now? And it's like, oh yeah, that's right. We, we have to start reaching out again and say, hey, you know, remember us, we're Gold Spruce Capital. We're still, we're still here looking to buy something. Um, and trying to do that in August is incredibly challenging because no one wants to talk in August, right? Like the, you know, entrepreneurs and that's, that's like the month of, vacation for for everyone and but certainly in, the, in that world they're not talking to new people then so we had a month that was you know relatively dry and we're both we're both very biased to action and it's tough to stand still after you've had what at the time felt like a massive failure to stand still and say there's, you know there's not much we can do right now um aside from you know building you know building out the the CRM and building out you know new industries and thinking about that so i'd say that, that was really challenging but overall the industry requires a ton of perseverance because you know you get a lot of you know figurative doors slammed in your face constantly saying i don't want to talk how did you get you know how did you who told you to call me 
no one told us to call you, right? Like, you know, we like the industry and we thought we'd reach out. Um, but you get a lot of doors slammed on your face. Um, and that's, or in your face, sorry. And that's, um, that takes time to, to build some, some tolerance and some tough skin too. I think I got really used to that at, you know, my time at Dental Corp, kind of flying around trying to, uh, trying to do deals with dentists. And um, as a result, I, it doesn't really impact me that much. It's, you know, you can't love dealing with humans if you don't, if you can't handle the, the negative side of that either. Um, but I'd say that, that in general is the tough part. It takes a long time. Right. And, you know, I was talking to, uh, to a, a friend of mine who's in the industry and I said, yeah, you know, we're getting close on this one. He's like, and I was like, you know, but every day something new comes up and he said, you know, he's done a couple deals at this point. He said, you know, Sam, I sometimes sit back and look at the deals we did and say, it was an absolute miracle. This thing got done. Like it's, I can't believe it actually got across the line and it does take a lot of, you know, things fall in the right direction, right? If it falls the other way, deal's dead. But if it goes that way, you're good to go. And there's, you know, you're, you're certainly as you approach deal close, that starts to happen increasingly every day. So I think the perseverance piece is A, you know, probably starting with relatively low blood pressure because it will rise over the, uh, over the process. But I think, you know, being willing to, to kind of pick yourself up from, you know, from your bootstraps and, and say, okay, time to get up and, and now, get back on the phone and start talking to more entrepreneurs and drive out to Mississauga and Brampton and Barrie and, you know, Whitby and, you know, all of these smaller towns. Cause you know, it's very rare. You find a business that's downtown Toronto. That's, uh, you know, in, in, in the sphere of what we look at and start all over again. Right. And you've got to, um, you've got to put on a brave face for a long time to keep doing that. And I think that's the, that's the challenge. And that's the really, you know, to say to persevere, you need to persevere through perseverance is effectively really what it is. This whole job is, you know, it's uh, long, long lead times, few deals. And, um, you don't, you don't get no, you don't hear no, um, always at the same time, right? You can hear a lot of yeses. Then one day they woke up on the wrong side of the bed and, and the deal's gone. It doesn't mean it's gone forever, but you've got to be willing to take that, manage it and, and move on with your life and keep your business going. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you've made a prediction back when you were in your MBA saying that, okay, in 10 years, I'm probably going to be a <laughs> managing partner at a private equity firm. Right. So, which is, which is actually, it's, it, that's verifiable on, on Google if, yeah. you, if you search it. Yeah. So you've, you've made that forecast, but if you were to kind of look back at your 20 year old self, your 20, so 20 year old Sam, probably in the third year university were to look at where you are right now, what do you think the emotional reaction would be hmm um i think pretty yeah pretty damn impressed you know yeah. and it's almost it's funny you ask that question i mean i I've never thought of it that way how would i look at myself at 20 i'll tell you how you know i think pretty impressed but the, the more tangible thing for me is two years ago right when we started golden spruce capital if i were to look at what we've managed to do to date which is just one deal Right, just one deal, and it takes a long time again. But just one deal, I'd be giving myself a pat on the back even two years ago. Right, um, it's it's a it's a real real challenge, and uh, it's also you know it's we we have to remind ourselves every once in a while. I find that you know people in in our in many industries, but in our industry in particular, and those are the people I interact with the most, have a hard time 
kind of celebrating small wins or even big wins because we're so driven and we're so, okay, great, we did this, but now we've got to go to the next thing. Um, I find it's important to savor some of these moments, right? Like, you know, I'll remember the day that we, the day that we signed and, you know, we cheers a glass of champagne. That was fun, right? But, you know, uh, you, you got to keep driving forward, but still remember that, hey, we've come a long way. We've done a lot. We're certainly not done. We have a lot more work to do and a lot more investments to make and a lot more money to make for our investors. Um, but no, it's, it's nice to see your, your thesis come true. Uh, that's the, it's, it's a nice pat on the back moment, but you know, as, as one of our investors said, when we let them know we got the deal done, we said, you know, just want to let you know, we closed and, you know, congratulations on, on making the investment. And he said, great work. Uh, he said, uh, that's great guys. Uh, uh, now it's time to get to work. Right. And it was like, Oh wow. Yeah. You know, you're right. That is the, that is the exact way to think about it. So, um, definitely would have, you know, looking back, uh, or sorry, projecting myself forward, um, my 20 year old self probably would have said, told you so, given that I wrote that in the, uh, <laughs> I wrote that in Toronto life. Um, but no, I think, uh, pretty proud and, and, uh, and certainly not the path I thought I'd take to get to here, but you know, that's part of it, right? That's part of what makes it fun. Yeah. And if you could give advice to that 20 year old self or the advice you wish you had gotten at that age, what do you think, uh, you would have wanted? Not, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I remember not getting into investment banking and that was just devastating, right? Like it was just like the world was going to end. I was like, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to be the person I want to be as a result of that. And you think that, you know, when you're 20, you haven't had, you know, where I hadn't had that many failures in life. And as a result, uh, probably wasn't as resilient as I needed to be at the time. And, uh, I think the advice I would give myself is, Hey, it's all, it all is going to work out. You know, what, what, and it sounds like a, it sounds like a lazy cop out, but if it if it's meant to be, it'll be. All you can apply is you know is energy towards it, right? Apply effort. But if it doesn't work, um, your life will will be fine. You'll be you'll be okay, and you'll find something rewarding, um, and and something you can be passionate about. Because if you, I, I find that. Um, at least for myself, investment banking was really the thing I was geared towards. And that was what was going to make me happy. And that's what I was passionate about. It's not what I was passionate about. What I was passionate about was working with really smart people. And if you start to broaden your definition of what it is you want to do, instead of being so narrowly focused, you can sort of say, okay, well, what else can I do to work with really smart people? And I get to work with really smart people every day now. So, um, I'd say that that, you know, is a lot of advice for my 20, apparently I had more advice for my 20 year old self than I thought. Uh, but I'd say that's it. Just don't, don't define success so narrowly and, um, things tend to work out. No, I think that's actually great advice. I think I went on the journey myself too, in terms of, I always thought I was super passionate about value investing and public equity investing. And so I went to work at a hedge fund, but it was just distilling down to like why investing and it was then it became, oh, because I really loved powerlifting, then why powerlifting? And it just ultimately just became that I just love learning. I just love optimizing the human system. Right. And it was just, okay, then what can I do that actually exactly. has that? Yeah. And it was, well, there's a lot of different things too. And so that just became, okay, then let's just combine my values, my strength, and let's just find something else about right. it. And yeah, I think that distilling down to the first principles of what is it you're passionate about is actually uh, a valuable thing to do and reflect on. Right. Yeah. No. That's a, that's great advice. Definitely. 
And yeah, Sam, thanks so much for um, the time you've given and coming on the podcast. Like, I really enjoyed it. And no, thanks for having me. I was uh, I was surprised. I was surprised to get the reach out. I remember you know, <laughs> I got I got the email from from Charles, and I was like, well, you know, I've always been told I had a face for radio, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not not sure what what value my story is going to bring. But uh, you know, uh, thanks thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and, and hopefully, you know, some of your listeners learned something. Um, learn something new or maybe get a maybe get an idea for uh, where their next internship will be yeah yeah definitely um, for people who are looking for an internship at um, you know a small private equity shop definitely reach out to Golden Spruce Capital um, and yeah Sam, thanks so much for coming on and uh, thanks also for sticking around for all the battery issues I had I really appreciate that <laughs> no problem thanks So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.